I'm sure that you can relate with my sentiment in that regard. Times when we're not really able to discern God's activity in the world. Uh, things seem rather chaotic. Seem, things seem out of control. It, it's hard for us to imagine that anything good could come of these particular circumstances. And we've got a lot of those circumstances right now, don't we? There's certainly political tensions and unrest and And there's COVID and all the the disagreements that go along with that. And just the essence of COVID itself. I mean, right, there's this, there's there's sickness in the world. I mean, there's cancer, there's, I mean, all these things just reflect uh, a certain amount of disorder in God's world. And how are we to think about this? Where, Where is God in all of this? And the book of Esther gives us a unique insight into the providence of God and how he works out his plans, often behind the scenes and in unlikely and unseen ways. And so I found found myself really encouraged this week working through Esther. I'm confident you're going to be encouraged as well. Uh, We are in the midst of a series entitled Route 66, Road Trip Through the Bible, working our way through all 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year, obviously not getting off into the weeds Uh, but looking at big picture themes and tracing out the overarching redemptive plan of our great God. So now Esther uh, takes place in uh, a time when God's people were in exile. So God had identified Abraham, uh, had entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, had promised to... um, make Abraham and his descendant to be a a blessing to all the nations of the world. So God was working out his plan through this particular family uh, and eventually brought them into a land of their own. But because of their sin and their rebellion, God allowed foreigners to oppress them and they were taken off into captivity or what we call exile. And uh, Esther's in a time period where the people are being restored from exile. Uh, Zerubbabel came along. He was uh, involved in helping to rebuild the temple. He led a group of people back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple, the altars, reinstituted the sacrificial system so that the people could worship God. Ezra came, who was a a teacher of the law, and he rebuilt the people. He he helped them uh, remember how to walk in God's ways. And he he built into the lives of the people. And then, of course, Nehemiah came later, rebuilt the physical walls of the city, and restored civic life. But in the midst of that is Esther. And Esther reminds us that while God is at work bringing his people out of exile, he's also at work preserving his people in exile. That's where Ezra's story takes place back in in Babylon, back in, in Persia, back in exile. And God was continuing to work out his plans among his people there uh, as well as in Jerusalem. Now one of the big questions related to Esther is how we are to read it. Is it a historical account or is it a novel? There are certainly uh, historical elements, real cities, real genealogies, real dates, real timelines, real kings. Uh, But there's also a beauty and a symmetry to the book. It is included among the writings in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's, it's in amongst all the books of poetry, like Psalms and Proverbs and Job. 
And so I would suggest that we read it as a historical novel. It is both history and novel. And um, understanding this unique genre, I think, is going to help us understand the main point of the book. The, the, the narrative is put together in a symmetrical way, in a beautifully crafted way to convey a particular point. And so we will uh, unpack that as we move through. We're going to briefly recount the narrative of Esther and then summarize the lesson of the book and then uh, take some opportunity to uh, look at some gospel glimpses, some ways in which Esther, the book of Esther, points us to Jesus as we look towards the Lord's table and have a time of response here at the close of the service. So the first portion is the seeming destruction of the Jews, chapters 1 through 3. We are introduced to a powerful and partying king. And I don't even know if that's the right way to use that word, partying, but it seems to, to fit. Uh, king Xerxes, or uh, some translations read King Ahasuerus, uh, he was the king of Persia during this time. Uh, he was the grandson of King Cyrus, who had originally given the Jews permission to return uh, from exile. But this king was a very powerful man. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The, 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 the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So he controlled 127 provinces, uh, ranging from India in the east to Africa in the south. I mean, he was the most powerful man in the known world at that time. Uh, we see so many different little insights and references to his power. One of those is this very unusual category of eunuchs that are referenced here in the book of Esther. Uh, eunuchs obviously are uh, male individuals who have been castrated. Their genitals have been removed. And th this was to make them rather docile. They, they wouldn't obviously have families uh, to care for. They could be committed solely to the king. And here in Esther, we find that the eunuchs are involved particularly in the oversight of the women, the queen and the king's concubines and all of these sorts of things. And so, uh, again, just this bizarre sort of category that I think reflects some of the, the, the texture and the, the power structures of the Persian Empire. But this king was not only powerful, he was also uh, a man who was given to excess. He holds a banquet here, described for us in chapter 1, a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. And the banquet lasted 180 days six months that's a long banquet and then when that was done he threw another seven day banquet that was for everybody in the city and he hosted this in a, a beautiful garden there at the palace uh, we're told that there was all sorts of costly items here in this in this lavish garden rare fabrics gold and silver couches that doesn't sound particularly comfortable but uh, I guess a status symbol, right? And, and uh, a mosaic flooring with marble and all sorts of, of rare uh, 
stones. Wine was served in gold goblets, and the guests were encouraged to drink as much as they wanted. The text says it was in accordance with the king's bounty. The idea being that this was a king who had unlimited, seemingly unlimited, resources at his disposal. Matter of fact, we're told that the whole reason for the six-month feast was so that he could show his power and glory. So why would you have a feast that lasted six months? Because you can, right? I mean, this would just show how powerful, how wealthy I am. The king was used to getting what he wanted. He was a pursuer of pleasure. He was very much uh, centered on himself. Every time we see him, he has a glass of wine in his hand. And we get a unique insight into his mindset in chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, so he, he feasted for six months and then another seven days, he's drunk, okay? He was in high spirits from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abiktha, Zetar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So Vashti refuses for reasons that are not unpacked here. Perhaps she was simply busy with uh, entertaining the women. We're told that she had Uh, hosted uh, a parallel banquet for the women uh, in the kingdom. Uh, But most likely she was tired of being treated as an object, right? For the gratification of men. This is a very sexualized culture as we read the account. Uh, Certainly a culture that was very much into uh, advancing men and their purposes. Uh, In any regard, she refuses to come and do what the king asks her to do, and the king is enraged. He controlled 127 provinces, but he didn't control this province, right? And uh, he and his advisors put their heads together, and uh, they're uh, determined to make an example of Vashti. After all, if the, if the queen doesn't obey the king, then all is lost. Women everywhere will be revolting against their husbands, And so Vashti is deposed, she is removed as queen, so we have a king who drinks too much, who has a temper, who's given to making rash decisions. Here's the backdrop of the story. But in the midst of this mess, we have a couple of lives of distinction, people who stand out. Some time passes here, the king's anger subsides, perhaps he even experiences a little bit of regret over his hasty decision. Once again, his attendants have a suggestion for him. Find a new queen. Round up all the beautiful young virgins from throughout the kingdom and choose the one you like best. This was an elaborate, real-life version of The Bachelor. And this is where Esther comes into the story. Chapter 2, verse 5. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, 
who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So she was a young Jewish orphan raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And she was taken into the king's palace as part of this elaborate contest. But we're told that not only was she beautiful in appearance, but she was also beautiful and attractive and gracious in spirit. She won the favor of Haggai, the king's eunuch, and of course ultimately won the favor of the king. Each of these women would spend the night with the king, but after encountering Esther, the king was smitten. He placed a crown on her head, declared her the new queen, and threw a great banquet in her honor. should come of no surprise, the king seemed to do banquets best. Everything was a reason to celebrate. For reasons that are not explained, Mordecai had urged Esther to not reveal her ethnicity. So Esther comes to this very prominent position in the kingdom without anyone knowing that she was a Jew. In addition to Esther standing out, not only because of her beauty, but her spirit, right? She's living a life of distinction here. Uh, Mordecai also stands out. Uh, We're told here at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot against the king. And his name was written into the palace records as one who saved the life of the king. So here are two people that stand out in the midst of the chaos and selfishness and dysfunction of the Persian Empire. Chapter 3 introduces a devious plot. There is a dark turn here in chapter 3. We would expect that Mordecai would be honored for his heroism. That's where we left off in chapter 2. Mordecai saved the life of the king. Instead, we are told that the king chose to honor someone else. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatta the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom 
of Xerxes. Now, there seems to be a bit of an overreaction here on the part of both Mordecai and Haman. First of all, why wouldn't Mordecai bow down? He's not being asked to worship Haman. Uh, Mordecai would have kneeled before the king when the king came by. So why, why was he refusing to give this sort of courtesy? And, and of course, on the other hand, Haman is, this is a major overreaction, right? Haman uh, is so mad that he determines that he's not only going to deal with Mordecai, but he's going to wipe out all of Mordecai's countrymen. Like, what in the world is going on here, right? Well, there's more to the story. There's a backstory here that every Jewish person would have picked up on. Haman was an Agagite. He was part of the Amalekites. These were a nomadic people descended from Esau, and they were the historic enemies of the Jews. Notice what we read here about the Amalekites back in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Uh, my Facebook feed, it keeps popping up all these Africa, you know, the, the lions chasing down the wildebeests, you know. Maybe I linger too long on those little things, and so now it knows me, you know. It, it, but they're always picking on the weakest, right, the, the, the slowest of the wildebeests. Every, all the other wildebeests are running, and the lions come in and grab this one. That's, this is what the Amalekites did to the people of Israel. The people of Israel came out of Egypt as slaves. They had no weapons, and they're traveling with young and old, women and children, the, the elderly, the disabled, and the Amalekites were just picking off the weak ones among them. I mean, just kind of brutal here in their, in their tactics. So God says, when the Lord your God gives you rest, from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So God had placed a curse on the Amalekites. He had determined that he was going to bring judgment on them, that their sins were going to catch up with them. Now, God intended for Saul to do this. So remember, when, when, you, when you're established in the land, when you're at peace, right? Well, now Saul is the king. We fast forward ahead. Saul is the king. And so Samuel comes to Saul and says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. God was serious. We struggle with passages like this, but God was serious about judgment. He's serious about sin. And God intended for Saul to bring about this judgment. And we know, if we know the account, that Saul sort of obeyed. He mostly obeyed. But he let the king of the Amalekites live. And that king's name was Agag. So here we are several hundred years later now, and we encounter Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of Agag, of the Amalekites. These were historic enemies. So Mordecai was not going to bow the knee to that man. 
And Haman was going to do everything in his power to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of his countrymen. So this is the animosity. Here's the dark turn in the story. Haman cast the, the lot, uh, or the, we would say the dice, right, to determine the date in which he would destroy the Jewish people. And then he goes to the king and gets him to sign off on this crazy plot. And then he publishes a decree, broadcasts the news throughout the Persian Empire. Notice how this ends in chapter 3, verse 15. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So the king and Haman sit down. I told you, every time he has a drink in his hand, right? He's leisurely, but outside in the city, things are in chaos. And it's not just among the Jewish people. The sense is that the Jewish people were highly respected. So all the residents of Susa are like, what in the world is going on? Right? It kind of shook the kingdom, shook the city. So that's the first half of the book. The seeming destruction of the Jewish people. The second part of the book describes the remarkable deliverance of the Jews. And it begins with a risky proposition. The Jewish people were... Of course, deeply troubled by this news, in less than a year's time, they would be destroyed. And so they put on sackcloth, which would be characteristic of someone who was mourning. They refused to eat. Esther was insulated from this. She didn't know what was going on. She just hears word that Mordecai is there at the city gates uh, crying and weeping and wearing these funny clothes. And so she sends out some word to Mordecai to say, what's going on, uncle? Cousin? And uh, Mordecai tells her about the plot against the Jewish people and pleads with Esther, use your influence to go before the king and bring this matter to him. Plead for mercy. But Esther was afraid. I love the, the realism in the text. Esther is not a superhero. She is a real-life young woman. And you didn't just approach the king uninvited in that culture Uh, That was uh, an invitation for death, and this was a king who was moody, who was given to rash decisions, and Esther was afraid to go to the king for fear of upsetting him. Mordecai urges her to act, and finally Esther resolves to go before the king with her request. The king responds favorably to her, and she invites the king and Haman to a banquet that she has prepared. And there at the banquet, instead of responding directly and stating her request to the king, she invites the king and Haman to a second banquet the following day. This is typical Middle Eastern culture. You're not too direct. You don't just lay your requests out there. It's all about the relationship. And so she goes through this very... um, gracious uh, way of, 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 of kind of approaching the situation, setting it all up for success. Well, needless to say, Haman went home from that first banquet floating high, right? He, he, was, he was so proud and 
and he, he and he alone had been invited to a private banquet with the king and the queen. And he just couldn't wait to tell his, his wife and his friends, and so he gets them all together. But he could hardly enjoy it because on the way home, who do you think he passed? Mordecai. That insolent Mordecai who would not bow before him. And so he starts griping about this. And finally, his family says to him, you know what you ought to do? You ought to construct a large pole, a tall pole, about 80 feet high, and have Mordecai impaled on that pole. There's some textual issues in the text there that they don't know whether it was a gallows where someone would be hung or a pole where someone would be impaled. At the end of the day... It doesn't really matter, right? It was going to be this public execution. And they said, why don't you get that poll ready? And then go into the king tomorrow morning and get permission, get his authorization, and have Mordecai executed. Just be done with him. So Haman begins to put that plan in place. And then we see the beginning of a great reversal in chapter 6. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. You see the collusion of events here, right? Mordecai is coming, Haman is coming to get permission to execute Mordecai. And he's coming at the very moment when the king has determined to honor Mordecai. So this is not going according to Haman's plan. Matter of fact, Haman is humiliated. He is made to lead Mordecai through the city on the king's horse and calling out, Mordecai is a really great guy. This is one of the king's most loyal servants. He is going throughout the city, lauding Mordecai, the last thing that he had wanted to do. But he didn't have much time to think about it because he has quickly invited to Esther's second banquet. And finally, the king presses Esther. What can I do for you? And Esther simply says, I wish to have my life spared and the lives of my people. That is my request. Simply spare my life. And the king says, who would dare take the life of the queen? And Esther points to Haman, right? And the king flies into another one of his classic rages, He hears that Haman had actually set up a pole on which to impale Mordecai. And the king says, perfect, hang Haman on that pole. (laughs) So this complete reversal. Mordecai, not only is his life spared, Haman is actually killed on the the pole that that Haman had set up for Mordecai. And, and, And Haman is not only deposed, but Mordecai is actually given Haman's position as second in command in the kingdom. So a complete turn of events. 
Uh, a new decree is issued by which the Jews are able to defend themselves against their enemies, and so the tables are turned and the Jews are saved. A new holiday is established. Uh, Mordecai and Esther institute an annual feast so that future generations would remember uh, these events. And then we have a brief postscript describing Mordecai's ongoing influence on behalf of the Jews. He advocated for them uh, for the good of his people. Well, this feast at the end, uh, I think, is really key to kind of interpreting the narrative. Uh, The Feast of Purim is the name of the feast. Uh, Purim is taken from the word pur, which means lot, or again, we would say dice. Lots were used to arrive at uh, random, unbiased, impartial decisions. You know, we're going to make a choice. Who gets this piece of cake? We'll, We'll flip for it, right? This is, this is the idea. And so Haman had cast the lot. Haman had rolled the dice to find out the date on which the Jews were to be exterminated. So this was the feast of the dice or the feast of chance. Without mentioning the name of God, the author highlights here the providence of God. This is one of the distinctive elements of the book of Esther. God is not mentioned one time. And yet, here's where that, that historical novel genre comes in, right? The story is crafted in such a way as to sort of keep that in the background, and yet it's the obvious conclusion. Proverbs even speaks to this. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. When we talk about the dice or we talk about the lots, we're talking about God's providence. We're talking about God working through these seemingly random events. And this is the, the main lesson of the book. God is working out his plan through the seemingly random events of human history. Think about it. Esther, out of all the young women, just happens to find favor with this pagan king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the assassination plot against the king. Mordecai's actions just happen to be recorded in the palace records. Haman just happened to walk by Mordecai one more time so that he recounted his frustration to his friends. Haman's friends just happened to encourage him to build a large pole on which to execute Mordecai. The king couldn't sleep before Esther's final banquet, and he just happened to be reading the portion of the palace records that described Mordecai's heroic deed. Haman happens to come in early in the morning as the king was thinking about how to honor Mordecai. The pole Haman had built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when the king decides to execute Haman. This is not happenstance at all. This is God's providence. Modern Purim celebrations uh, involve costumes and disguises and masks because God often works in those ways. God is often working in ways that are not immediately obvious. 
So we started off acknowledging that sometimes God seems distant. We're, we're unable to discern what he's doing. I ask you to think about it again. What aspects of your life seem random and out of control? And in what ways might God be working out his providential plan through those very circumstances? The Feast of Purim, I think, again, provides the lens the feast of chance, the feast of the dice, the feast of God's providence uh, points to the real overarching theme of the book. And if we understand God's providence, I think it leads us to some additional lessons to think about. Make sure you're found on the right side of history. Go back to chapter 4. This is really one of the turning points in the book. Uh, Esther 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, He sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. I love Mordecai's faith here. Mordecai says God is going to deliver his people. He's claiming the promises that God had extended to them, right? So he's able to speak with boldness. God is going to preserve his people. The question is, Esther, are you going to be part of it? The question is, when God brings vindication, are you going to be found to be on the right side? You can align yourself with the king. You can align yourself with Haman. You can hide your identity. But when God shows up and vindicates his people, then you'll be destroyed. That's really a powerful appeal that Mordecai makes to her. And I think one that's that's helpful for us to think about as well. Mordecai, uh, Moses, rather, had a similar decision to make. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. He had every privilege, every pleasure at his disposal. But he reached a calculated decision. I mean, the, the Hebrew people were slaves. They were nobodies. But Moses believed that God was going to deliver his people as he had said. And so he made a conscious choice to put behind the fleeting temporary pleasures of Egypt and to align himself with the persecuted slave people of God. That was a really good choice. (laughs) It didn't seem like it at the time. But he had this long-term perspective that he was going to line up with God's people knowing that God would vindicate his people. Be faithful when the particular, with the particular assignment God has given you. Here in uh, Esther 4, um, the end of verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Right? Esther, you're afraid to go before the king. I'm suggesting to you that God has put you here for this very moment. <laughs> God has assigned this spot for you. And, and the Apostle Paul actually uses similar language in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to them. It's language of assignment. God has given each of us an assignment. I realize Esther's was pretty big on a big stage. 
but God has given us the, the particular job we have, the, the family that we've been born into, the particular geographical area where we live, our neighborhood. God has given an assignment to us. How are you doing with the assignment God has given to you? And we recognize God's providence in all these things. These aren't just chance happenings. God has orchestrated these things. Commit to doing what's right, not merely what is easy or safe. Uh, Esther here at the end of verse 16 agrees to go into the king and she says, if I perish, I perish. Esther had no assurances that her life would be spared. Even before COVID, right? We were living in a, a culture that values health and safety over every other value. And we have to just recognize God has not called us to safety. Uh, we ought to use proper precautions. We ought not to be foolhardy, right? So these are all good things. This isn't a statement about masks or non-masks or vaccines. Or, I, the point is God's mission is inherently dangerous. He's called us to take the good news into the world in the face of opposition and persecution. And we have brothers and sisters that are dying for their faith around the world. We've been called to join him in his mission in the world. And we, like Esther, should be willing to do what is right, not merely what is easy or safe. Live by faith and not by sight. One of the persistent themes of Esther is reversal. Matter of fact, the entire book is sort of one big reversal. We won't get into all the details. It's kind of fun to look at it this way. But it starts with the king's feast, and it ends with the Jews' feast and their celebration, right? And it, it kind of traces out uh, th this tremendous reversal that, that really finds its focal point there with the Haman and Mordecai uh, section. The point is, we are called not to live based on the circumstances around us or what we see, because it oftentimes doesn't look great. We are called to live by faith, confident in how the story ends. And that is a particular discipline and a particular worldview that we are called to. By the way, my friends, there is a great reversal that is coming. <laughs> Read the book of Revelation. You see Babylon, which represents the world's system of wealth and technology and influence and pleasure, and it comes crashing down. And the people of God, the persecuted people of God, stand on the shore and see God's enemies destroyed. It's a picture, I believe, of the exodus out of Egypt, right? Where the Hebrew slaves stand on the shore and watch the mighty Egyptians destroyed in the Red Sea. That scene is going to be played out again at the end of the age. We ought to live by faith, not by sight. Finally, don't forget God's providence. Mordecai and Esther established an annual feast because they knew the tendency to forget. They had to be intentional with relaying God's great works to the next generation. And we ought to be given to celebrating God's faithfulness and His provision. And when we get those glimpses of what God has been doing, which don't often come along, right? Uh, it seems like often we live in a fog 
but when we see those glimpses of God bringing about circumstances for his glory and our good, it ought to be the type of thing that we celebrate. Finally, a couple of gospel glimpses as we turn attention to the Lord's table and respond. Uh, First of all, Esther and Mordecai intervene and advocate on behalf of their people. We've seen this with Nehemiah as well. But Esther and Mordecai, Esther in particular, kind of comes out of the palace, right? She, she, was, she was protected. She was insulated there. But she left the palace and stepped into the fray with her people. What a great picture of Jesus and even the incarnation uh, where he, being the eternal son of God, uh, emptied himself and took on human flesh and humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Esther was a star. It's literally what her Persian name means. It's what Esther means, star. She was a bright light in the darkness. And Jesus is the bright and morning star that shines in the darkest night. We have several references to that terminology being used to describe Jesus. So appropriate. And God preserved the people of Israel and the line of the Messiah when it seemed on the verge of extinction. So what if the Jewish people were wiped out? That would have had some pretty significant consequences, right? The line of the Messiah would have been extinguished. We have several glimpses throughout biblical history where it seems like that little candle is about to go out. And God preserves the line of the Messiah that would come from the people of Israel, from Abraham's descendants. 